Well, good morning, First Baptist Church, Fisherville. We know that this is a, not, a, not a normal Sunday, a very unusual Sunday, but saints across the world are meeting just like this. We want to give thanks to God for the ability even to see one another, even across the medium of, uh, of high-speed internet. So let's be called to worship wherever you are this morning with Psalm 103 and hear what our brother the psalmist writes. He says these comforting words to us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Church, though we can't be together this morning, we know that despite the distance, our hearts are knitted together as the community of faith. We are still the people of God. So wherever you are this morning, let's join our hearts, join our voices together, and let's sing and worship the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my
Father, the psalmist calls us to bless you as a response to the blessing that we have in our great Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and applied by your Spirit. Indeed, we bless the triune God this morning, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and we confess that we have been blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so, Lord, even in a difficult time, we have all resources to bless you in your Son and by your Spirit. And, Lord, we thank you and we praise you that you are a God that we can trust even in perilous times. We thank you that we can take refuge in the shadow of your wings, as the psalmist says, till the storms of destruction pass by. And we know that because the greatest storm of destruction was no virus. It was the storm of your justice and wrath on sin. Lord, that we have been redeemed from because it fell on your Son in our place. And Lord, that's why we have every reason to trust you this morning. And that's why we worship you. That's why we bless you. And we pray, Lord, that as we worship you today as the people of God, even through Facebook Live, in your wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, and that we know all those realities supremely, in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, there may be some here that are watching on Facebook Live that never have the opportunity to, to see a worship service centered on your son, Jesus. So Father, even as you comfort your people today by your word, we pray, Lord, that you would convict 
people who have never trusted in Jesus of their sin and of their need for a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ, who came as our substitute, lived in our place, fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, and then going to the cross and taking the righteous justice and judgment of a holy God in the place of sinners and being raised from the grave on the third day that we might be justified, that we might have our sins forgiven. We pray today, Lord, that you would use this providential time to win, to draw people to yourself in your son. We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Church, just as a reminder, no matter what happens and how long this, this virus lasts, we know that the love of God outlasts it all. And nothing can separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ our Lord. So let's continue to sing this morning.
Church, the, the apostles remind us of these words of hope and seasons of uncertainty and fear. And Paul writes in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Let me, let's say that again. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, not in of ourselves, you may abound in hope. And our brother Peter writes, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to this eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's continue to sing. to us no guilt in life no guilt in life no fear in death this is the power 
power of hell. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I Good morning. If you would turn your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 8. For those of you who are joining us for the first time, we are making our way through the book of Samuel. We've been in 1 Samuel, and now we are in 2 Samuel chapter 8. When I went into ministry, it never dawned on me that we would have the technology to be able to do something like this. And so even though this is not an ideal situation... Ideal, we, ideally, we gather as the people of God on a weekly basis. We, we do see God's common grace in this and how social media and technology can be used for redemptive purposes. So let's pray and, that we, and ask the Lord to do just that, that the Lord would, would do something mighty in our service, even as we worship through Facebook Live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy and your grace. Thank you, Lord, that as the people of God, we are hidden in Christ, our God, the Son of God, the God-man. And we thank you, Lord, that because of that, we have no fear. Lord, there's nothing in this world that can separate us from your love in Jesus Christ. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, or powers, nor height, nor depth, or any other created thing is able to separate us. And Father, we pray that that belief would be confirmed even more today as we make our way through our text. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Two times since Heather and I have lived in Louisville, we've had the fire department rush to our house because of smoke from our oven. In neither case was there a fire. And so as they stormed our house, I felt more frustration than appreciation. Now you contrast that with one of my good friends, Jeremy Pierre, who this past Tuesday had a real fire in his house, on the second floor of his house. When the firemen came and they stormed his house, they, the, the second floor had been lost, but they salvaged the bottom floor. And Jeremy's response to this was not frustration, as I had towards the firemen, rather than appreciation. Jeremy's response was gratitude. And reverence. Now, the difference in our case, there really was no danger. There was just smoke. In Jeremy's case, the situation was dire. You know, there's no celebrating sacrificial grace, there's no sacri- uh, celebrating of sacrificial mercy 
unless you live in the recognition of your need for it. You've heard me say this before, but there are three obstacles in our culture that in many ways keep us from cherishing the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel as we should. They, they kind of work as masking agents of our real need. And those three masking agents are health, wealth, and entertainment. And they mask the stark reality of life in a fallen world. And all three of those have taken a hit over the previous days. So for instance, for those of us who are sports fans, we don't have sports entertainment right now. We don't have March Madness to look forward to. With regard to our wealth, the stock market has taken a significant plunge. And then, clearly, with regard to health, there are 69 species of what is called the coronavirus, seven of which affect humans. Now, the medical community has known about these viruses since the 1960s. But it wasn't until 2002 when the general population learned about it because of an outbreak of one of these viruses that occurred in China called SARS. Now, it was contained there with only about 8,000 cases, but with a mortality rate of 30 or 9.5 to 10%. Now, 10 years later, another strain of coronavirus hit particularly in Saudi Arabia, with a very high mortality rate of 35%. Again, it was contained with only 2,400 cases. It was called MERS. Now, we wouldn't hear about a similar virus until December of 2019, just three months ago. The first report was again in China. And the virus is called SARS-CoV-2. And the disease from that virus is called COVID-19. Since then, it has spread to over 115 nations. And as of today, 49 states in the United States. But I say all this not to frighten. In fact, I'm not frightened at all. Certainly we can have concern, but I believe we have no cause for fear. This is actually a strategic moment, even as we pray for those who are suffering from this terrible virus. But it's a strategic moment as the curtain has been pulled back on our fragility. Our fragility has been revealed. It was there all along. But our health, our wealth, and our entertainment was masking our fragility. And now it has been revealed. And that is a good thing. Indeed, it is a good thing to remember the words of the psalmist. Psalm 103, verse 15, that says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. And that truth has to settle in in order to appreciate the fact That we're not living in a house that might have smoke, but no real fire. No, we are in a dire situation in this world. And it's not primarily the curse on 
creation, the inanimate creation. No, we're in a dire situation more because of the presence of a far more lethal and widespread virus, one that has infected us all, and that is sin. And that's why texts like 2 Samuel chapter 8 should be hopeful to every believer, but a warning to every unbeliever, because it foreshadows a day when our great king would stamp out every enemy. And that includes enemies that are the fruit of the curse on inanimate creation, like viruses, but also enemies to God and enemies to his people, like Revelation 21, 8 describes, the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Now, we have seen in 2 Samuel 7, if you haven't been with us, one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. The covenant promises made to David that it will be through his offspring, a king will come who will have an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion will be from sea to sea. Those are the beautiful promises of the Davidic covenant. And now in chapter 8, the text we're in today, this text outlines what will happen as a consequence of those promises. In other words, this isn't just history that we're reading about this morning. It's covenant history. Of course, the elephant in the room concerns the fact that the covenant kingdom has enemies. The covenant kingdom has opposition. David's neighbors, that is the neighbors surrounding Israel in that day, weren't just people of goodwill who were indifferent to David's reign, who were indifferent or neutral to David's throne. And certainly they did not embrace his rule and his reign. They wanted to extinguish Israel. And Israel was the custodian of the seed of the woman. God had promised that a seed from the woman would come who would crush the seed of the serpent. And Israel is the custodian of that seed. The Messiah comes through Israel. And so if the custodian of this salvation is to survive and is to thrive, battles have to be fought. And there are four major battles that are recorded in 2 Samuel 8 in David's kingdom campaign. In fact, the first 14 verses we see here, we see that his campaign is a righteous made to David. After this, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them. And David took Mepheg Ammah out of the hand of the Philistines. Again, the success, the triumph, the spread of David's kingdom in chapter 8 that we're going to read about is the result, the fruit of the promises made to, by God. We can trust the promises of God. And important in this regard you look back in chapter 7, verse 10, 
when God made covenant with David, he says these words in verse 10. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place, and I love this, and be disturbed no more. That's the promise. Of course, this place was the land that had been promised by God to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 18. And here we see the, the promise realized as God's kingdom comes through David and extends, as we're going to see, to the west, verse 1, to the east, to the south, verses 13 and 14. And wherever David reigns, there the kingdom of God stands. Because God's kingdom now, for the rest of history, for all eternity for that matter, will be expressed through the Davidic king. And the enemies of God, where this reign is communicated, are subdued. Again, we address this issue in 1 Samuel 15. We looked at it over two sermons, but this is called intrusion ethics. You see, the punishment for all sin is death. That's a good thing. We tend to think of judgment as a bad thing. But think about a judge who does not penalize crimes. So judgment is a good thing. And ultimately, all unrepentant people will face divine judgment. And that warning is a good thing. It is a gracious thing to warn people of a coming judgment, just like it would be a gracious thing of a doctor to warn a patient of the, of the virus and the consequences of the virus. And yet sometimes we get snapshots of God's final judgment intruding into the flow of history, foreshadowing the reality to come. You see, the problem with Israel's enemies of their society, and they had persisted in them for decade and century after century to the point that they were influencing every nation round about. And these nations had no qualms about their quest to destroy Israel. Of course, to destroy Israel is to destroy the very mechanism, custodian, by which the Messiah would come. So this was a gospel issue. And so there were three main reasons behind David's actions that we see in chapter 8. First of all, punishment for accumulated sins. Secondly, the elimination of the influence and the gangrenous effects of these pagan nations. And then third, the extension of the rule of God, which is a good thing. And that reveals to us a God who is committed to eradicating sin and renewing His creation. Isn't that good news in a time where we're so concerned about a virus that has impacted over 115 nations of the world. Now, the key word in this regard is the word defeated. It occurs seven times in our passage. Verse 1, David defeated. Verse 2, he defeated Moab. Verse 3, David defeated, hated Ezer. And on and on you see the word defeated. And the first defeat was the Philistines. 
Now, we don't know anything about Mephegama. Some have speculated that perhaps this was a metaphor for Gath, the central capital city of the Philistine. We just don't know. It's not important for us to know. But we do know the Philistines. They came from the line of Ham and his son, Egypt, the father of the Egyptian. Genesis 10, verse 14. And as far back as the time of the judges, the Philistines were the central problem for Israel. They were Israel's primary thorn in the flesh. And they were the, the Philistines were the main reason that Israel had asked for a king. They didn't trust the Lord. And so they said, we want a king like the other nations. And so God gave Israel a king after their own heart. His name was Saul. Now it's telling that what he gave them was what they wanted. But he was not the king from the true line of Judah. He was a king from Benjamin. And that should have given them pause when they recognized that. Because we see throughout Saul's reign that the Philistines take dominion over the people of God. Ultimately, we'll see that Saul will be defeated and Israel will be defeated by the Philistines. And then the Philistines will inhabit half the territory of Israel. And so when God graciously gives Israel a king after his heart, David, and when David ascends as king, at this point, half of his country was occupied by the Philistines. Of course, we saw in 2 Samuel chapter 5 that God gave the Philistines into the hands of David. And so David exterminates or he eliminates, he runs the Philistines out of their land. And, and now what we're seeing in verse 1 of chapter 8, he's taking that battle to their homeland. Now, why would he do that? To end their threat altogether. This was the central enemy of God who wanted Israel to be exterminated. This is the seed of the serpent. And as we know from that promise in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman, who at this time in history is David, will extinguish the seed of the woman or the serpent. Now, subdued is another important word here. What's interesting about this word, notice, he subdued them. That word can also be used in a positive sense. In fact, it's used often in a positive sense. And it can, it can mean to humble oneself before God. That same word, for instance, is used in that verse that we all know so well from 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, then I will hear them and, and heal their land. That's the same word. In other words, if my people who are called by name will subdue themselves willingly, and gladly to me, I will hear the, heal their land. It's the same word. But those who refuse to humble themselves before the Lord and His rule expressed through His Davidic King, they will be subdued. And this anticipates a day to come. Let me ask you a question. In that day to come, how many knees will bow? Every knee will bow in that day. Now, the second battle we see in verse 2. And he defeated Moab 
and he measured them. So here the, the reign of David is extending to the east, whereas the Philistines resided on the west, on the coast. Here now it's going to the east. He defeated Moab, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants of David and brought tribute. Moab had previously posed a spiritual threat to Israel in Numbers 25 with their daughters. And even before that, their king, Balak, had hired this false prophet Balaam to curse the people of God. But instead of cursing the people of God, listen to these words from from Balaam. Numbers 24, verse 17. I love this. I see him now, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Now, there's a lot that could be said about that verse. The head of the seed of the serpent, and here Moab is depicted as the seed of the serpent. But here we learn that that star from Jacob, that scepter from Jacob is David. And judgment comes to two-thirds of the Moabites. Now, no reason is given why two-thirds are put to death and one-third survive. All we can say is God is sovereign in his salvation. But they became David's subjects, and they brought tribute. Notice in verse 2, the Moabites became servants to David, that is, the one-third that survived, and brought tribute. I love that. Tribute is a word that's used earlier in Samuel for sacrificial offerings made to God. Let me just give you a couple of texts. 1 Samuel 2, verse 17. 1 Samuel 2, verse 29. 1 Samuel 3, verse 14. So this tribute is another word for sacrificial offerings to God. That doesn't necessarily mean it's used that way here, but it is interesting. In other words, the Moabites may or may have not been willing subjects to David. But in the end, God's king will prevail. This should be encouraging us all. In the end, God's king will prevail, no matter what circumstances we face as a people. And rather than playing the role of judge and jury and condemning David's actions for for judging two-thirds of these people, We need to see that the righteousness and the justice of God's kingdom includes his judgment on all rebellion against him. And that's a good thing. In his forbearance, God's judgment may be held back for a time, giving opportunity for repentance. That's Romans 2 verse 4. But just as we see with the Moabites here, In verse 2, the day will come when the Lord will judge the world in righteousness 
by his king. Acts 17, verse 31. Third, now the third battle we see here, we see in verses three and four. And in verses three and four, having extended his rule to the to the west and to the east, David is now going to direct it to the north. Notice in verse 3, David also defeated, hated Ezer, the son of Reho, the king of Zobah, as he went to restore his power at the river Euphrates. And David took from him 17 horsemen, 1,700 horsemen, 20,000 foot soldiers, and David hamstrung all the chariot horses, but left enough for a hundred chariots. Now, Zoba was a powerful kingdom to the north of Israel, modern-day Syria, and even further north than that. Hated Ezer was the king of Zoba, and in a bit of irony, his name means, Hadad is my help. Hadad Ezer, Ezer meaning the, the Hebrew word for helper. Hadad is my help. Now, who is Hadad? Hadad was a pagan deity, a storm god, whose name means the one who smashes. David proves that Hadad is fake news. And so David's reign is extending westward. It's extending eastward. It's extending northward. This is God's promise to Abraham, Genesis 15, 18, being filled full. But here's the question. Why did David spare 100 chariots? It's interesting that he says that. He spared 100 chariots. I think this is the writer's way of signaling that David's faith is not perfected. Why do I say that? Because trust in chariots was understood in the Old Testament as being contrary to trust in the name of the Lord our God. Psalm 20, verse 7, some trust in horses, some trust in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And it's interesting that even in Isaiah's day, when he is speaking against apostate Israel, he includes these words in Isaiah 2, verse 7, there's no end to their chariots. You see the point he's making? They have built up this massive military rather than trusting in the Lord who had made promise to be their king. When the Lord makes war cease in the ends of the earth, he'll burn the chariots with fire, Psalm 46, verse 9. And so in that regard, I believe by David sparing a hundred chariots, it's signaling that his trust, his faith was not perfect. But it also reminds us how the Lord uses people whose faith is not perfect. That's a good word for us, isn't it? Notice with us in verse 5. And when the Syrians of Damascus came to help hated Ezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 men of the Syrians. And then David put garrisons in Aram of Damascus 
And the Syrians became servants to David and brought tribute. And so this kingdom was immediately to Israel's north. They were likely a vassal state to hated Ezer. So they would, pro- they would provide military support in times of war and battle to hated Ezer. But just like Hadad, the storm god, was no help. During this time, neither was Damascus. Because the king and his rule and reign is efficacious. It's effective. And that's the hope of the world. And just like the Moabite remnant, Damascus submits to David's rule again and brought tribute. Verse 5, they became servants to David, and they brought tribute. That's just beautiful. It's very hopeful. Again, whether out of conviction or out of compulsion, every knee will bow in the end. This is a foreshadowing. It's a coming attraction of what will be. And note the second part of verse 6. We'll see this twice in our passage, verse 14 as well. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's so hopeful. Again, this isn't just history. This is covenant history. And it's pointing us to a greater covenant and a greater David. God gave him victory wherever he went. So not only is the king's victory inevitable, it's necessary. Only with the reversal of evil will God's kingdom come. So as God's kingdom comes, evil is reversed. And by saving the king from his enemies, God is saving the king's people. Does that sound familiar? He saves David, and in so doing, he saves his people. And notice with me in verse 7. And David took the shields of gold that were carried by the servants of hated Ezer from the king and from Beta and from Barathai, cities of hated Ezer. King David took very much bronze. This, of course, anticipates something greater. Haggai 2 speaks about this. Isaiah speaks about this. Isaiah 60 verse 5. Who is the you? It's the servant, God's servant, the suffering servant, the redeemer. The wealth of the nation shall come to you in that day. And David is foreshadowing that by time. And as striking as that is, notice in verse 9, I love this. When Toy, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the whole army of hated Ezer, Toy sent his son Joram to King David to ask about his health and to bless him because he had fought against hated Ezer and defeated him. For hated Ezer had often been at war with Toy. So hated Ezer was Toy's enemy. And, and so Joram brought him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. So Toy and his people had been tormented by hated Ezer. Hadadezer was his enemy, and now the king has defeated his enemy. And so he sends his son to make peace with the king. 
Sound familiar? These patterns are preparing us for something greater. And in so doing, he brings further tribute to David. Now notice in verse 11, these also King David dedicated to the Lord. So he's taking the tribute lavished on him. And notice what he's doing. He's dedicating it to the Lord together with the silver and the gold that he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. From Edom, Moab, the Ammonites, the Philistines, Amalek, and from the spoil of hated Ezer, the son of Rehob, king of Zobah. Just a question, a thought here. How do you know a person believes that all blessing is from the Lord? It's a good question. They treat their blessings as stewards rather than owners. David here is an example for us. He takes the tribute lavished on him by no merit of his own. This was the Lord's doing. We see that in chapter, or we see that in verse 6 and verse 14. And he, he redirects these blessings to the Lord, not as an owner, but as a steward. And now having defeated the people to the northwest, David in his fourth battle, we, this brings us to the fourth battle in the text, directs his attention to Edom, his neighbors to the southwest. Notice in verse 13, and David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. Scholars not, are not sure where the Valley of Salt is, but most believe it's around the Dead Sea. It makes sense, doesn't it? And then he put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. He put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. Incidentally, this battle is the occasion for Psalm 60. David wrote Psalm 60 in response to this particular battle. We know that from the, the inscription. But again, let's hear from Balaam. Centuries earlier in Numbers 24, when Balak had hired him to curse Israel, instead he blessed Israel with these glorious prophecies. And what did he say in verse 18? Edom shall be dispossessed. These very people. Edom shall be dispossessed, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. There's a glorious unity to the Bible. Why? Because there's ultimately one author. There's over 40 human authors, but there's ultimately one divine author. There's one meta-narrative that finds its end and goal in David's far-off son, great-grandson. There's one story, and that's why there's unity, remarkable unity in the Bible. And as David writes in Psalm 60, verse 12, on this occasion, with God, he does valiantly. With God, verse 12, he does valiantly. That's the idea we see again. And notice in the second part of verse 14. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Again, we're not just reading history. We're reading covenant history. It finds its fulfillment in the new covenant and the greater Davidic king. This is our hope in the midst of our circumstances. This is our hope. It's a glorious hope. The Lord gave victory to David. No virus 
can overcome the king. The Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And I find it gloriously providential that we're in this text on this day. Again, this is a repeat of the second part of verse 6. And so several times in this passage, we read that David defeated his enemy. And yet, it's God who gives victory. Let me just use this as a teaching point. This reminds us as a secondary application of the doctrine known as compatibilism. God is sovereign. Humans are responsible. Those two truths are compatible with one another. The Bible doesn't explain the mystery of the tension, but both truths are true. David defeated his enemy, and yet here we see it is God who gives the victory. God is sovereign and in control. And so we've seen a righteous and just campaign. The text closes with a righteous and just administration of the king. Look with me in verse 15. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity. That word can also mean righteousness. Justice and righteousness, which are synonymous terms largely, to all his people. By grace through faith are under the reign and the rule of the Davidic king. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was over the army. These are his loyal men. Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahalud, was recorder. And Zadok, the son of Ahatub, and Ahimelech, the son of Abiathar, were priests. And Sariah was secretary. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was over the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And David's sons were priests. There's this repeated stress, though, throughout chapter 8, and I think it, it, it bears looking at, of the comprehensive nature, the effective nature of God's king and his rule. So, for instance, the word all is found nine times in this passage. Now, the English doesn't always translate it as all. So I want to take you through that just briefly so you can see the impact of the comprehensive nature of David's rule. Notice in verse 4, David hamstrung all the chariot horses. All right, notice in verse 6, the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. That's the same word for all. Okay, so notice in verse 9, he defeated the whole army of Hadadezer. That's all the army. It's the same word. And then notice... In verse 11, he dedicated from all the nations he subdued. Again, notice verse 14, all Edom, all the Edomites. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. Again, that's the Hebrew word for all. And then verse 15, David reigned over all Israel. And he, gave, he administered justice and equity to all his people. That's the comprehensive nature of this king. And that is our hope. It's a glorious hope. It's also the first use of this phrase, justice and equity. Or you could translate it, justice 
in righteousness. Those words had been used together, but in reverse, just one other time in the Old Testament. Genesis 18, 19, when God spoke to Abraham. Abraham's, Abraham was the head of the Abrahamic covenant, and his headship would be one of righteousness, justice and righteousness. So I believe the connection is intentional because the promises made to David are partial fulfillment, the promise made to Abraham, and the means of fulfillment. And so by righteousness and justice, or again, you could translate that equity as the ESV does. And this will also require a just and righteous administration as we see here. Let me just note this one point that I think can be confusing. The very last phrase of the passage, it says David's sons were priests. Well, they weren't Levitical priests. They were not qualified to be Levitical priests. And in that day, under the Old Covenant, the office of priest and the office of king were two distinct offices. And so it likely means that they acted as domestic chaplains to the court. It's hard to say exactly what it's meant there, but we don't need to lose the forest for the trees. That's centrally not what 2 Samuel 8 is about. The central message of 2 Samuel 8, and this is so important for us today, is that David, the conquering king, foreshadows the messianic role of the Lamb of God who overcomes all of his enemies and all of his people's enemies by the blood. Revelation 17, 14, they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for he is the Lord of lords, and he's the King of kings. Such a hopeful note for us today. But the hint of David's trust in chariots signals that there is a flaw and the type is kind of like a picture, a coming attraction that points us to an anti-type, the ultimate fulfillment. David is a type, but there's always some kind of discontinuity between the type and the anti-type. David is a type, but that's all he is. We see weaknesses in his armor. The world at that point and Israel at that point would have to wait for one <clears throat> who would come in and minister and usher in perfect justice and perfect righteousness. Interestingly, after David's day, those two terms, justice and equity, or justice and righteousness, sometimes it's translated equity, sometimes it's translated as righteousness, it will be used in three ways. The first way is that it's what would be expected of the future coming king. Listen to Isaiah 9, verse 7. We, we sing this at Christmas. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. You get that? Same words. There's one who's coming and he will sit on David's throne and he's going to administer that throne with justice and righteousness, the very words we see here of David's administration. Now, as a result of that, 
The scripture tells us that God is going to enforce his justice and his righteousness through this king. He will judge the world in righteousness with this king, by this king, Acts 17, verse 31. And so that's not necessarily good news for everyone because he will administer justice. He will administer righteousness. But the second way we see these two words used, people. Listen to these words from Proverbs 21.3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That is the calling. That is the responsibility of the people of God. To We don't. The scripture says there's none righteous. No, not one. Paul's not describing there in Romans 3.10 a class of really wicked and evil people. He's describing all of humanity. There's none righteous. And yet here the text is saying to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to God than sacrifice. It's more acceptable than going to church or doing mass or whatever religious hoops you jump through to do righteousness. And Paul says there's none righteous. And yet there's one who comes as our substitute. And he does righteousness. The king. He comes, Matthew 3.15, and he fulfills all righteousness. That's our greater Davidic king. There's a third way these terms are used. We've seen that it speaks of one who will come, who will sit on David's throne. Isaiah 9 verse 7. We've seen that it's God's mandate for his people. Proverbs 21.3. Listen to these words. Psalm 33, verse 5. He loves righteousness and justice. Who is he? The Lord. More specifically, listen to these words from Psalm 89, verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of the Lord's throne. Now, Again, if you think about that, that's not good news. What that tells us the house is on fire because the scripture says there's none righteous, and righteousness is the foundation of this throne, the Lord's throne. But that's wherein the good news comes. You have to recognize the peril in order to celebrate the sacrificial sacrifice. That's why Jeremy was celebrating the firemen, and I was frustrated at the firemen. My house was not in danger. His house was But then he goes on in Romans 3, and he says, but now the righteousness of God has been revealed through the law and the prophets. And he says that there's none righteous, and we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but we are justified by our Lord who came as our propitiation. Now, that may be a new term for you, propitiation, but it's a word you need to memorize. Propitiation simply means to satisfy God's wrath. Jesus has satisfied God's wrath for those who would trust in him by taking the wrath in his person. In other words, Jesus has come to fix a situation that is much more dire 
than the coronavirus. Much more dire. He has come to deal with a greater virus than the coronavirus that can physically kill you. This virus he has come to reverse is a virus that can condemn us for all eternity. But he comes and he takes it. He, that virus is imputed to him. And God so doing, he establishes a kingdom that will one day fill the earth, every nook and cranny of the earth, reversing the curse on humanity and on creation, which means one day, no more coronavirus. Let me close with these words. Revelation 21, verse 4. Very hopeful words as we close out this text. He will wipe away every tear from their eye. The tears are caused by sin. They're also caused by living in a world that is under the curse of sin. He will wipe away every tear. Why? Because he's reversed the curse by his resurrection. And death shall be no more. We'll no longer have to watch the news. We'll no longer have to, to read the accounts of what's happening in the world with plagues. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Why? Because the king's reign has extended to the ends of the earth, and all the enemies of God have been defeated. For the former things have passed away. We're living in the former things, by the way. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Isn't that a good word? The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Incidentally, those are the very words given to David in the Davidic covenant. 2 Samuel 7, 14. David, the promises made to him find their fulfillment in this one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the hope of the world. And in that regard, let me leave you with this acronym, COVID-19. COVID, Christ over viruses and infectious disease. Now that sounds a bit cheesy, but it's thoroughly theological. And it's the hope of the world. In fact, infectious disease, the greatest of them all is sin. And the Bible says we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And we deserve judgment. It's what we deserve. Imagine a world where sin and crime is not penalized. It would be anarchy. It is good that God judges sin. And we all deserve that judgment. And God has poured out that judgment on a substitute, the greater David. And the Bible says no matter what you have done, what you're currently doing, no matter what sins you have committed, if you will flee to this king, as we see with the Moabites, and we see all of these in this text who, who submitted themselves to him, the Bible says your sins will be forgiven. That is our hope. He justifies the ungodly. Praise God for that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. Lord, a text that is dense with battles. But we're reminded that these battles have to be fought in a fallen world. Today, they're not fought with a physical sword. 
They're fought with the sword of the Spirit and the gospel sword. We pray, Lord, that our people would find our hope. May have never trusted in Jesus. That by your common grace, you've pulled back the curtain to allow us to see our dire situation. And Lord, in so seeing our dire situation, they would flee to Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Come in, church. Let's end our service this morning with a, a song of hope. sent his son they called him Jesus he came to love heal and forgive he lived and died to buy my pardon an empty grave is there to prove my Savior lives because he lives I can face tomorrow because he lives all fear is gone because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives and then one day I'll cross the river I'll fight life's fire no And then as death gives way to victory, I'll see the lights of glory and I'll know He lives. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow because He all fear is gone because I know and life is worth the living just because he lived because I know because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Amen. What a word of hope to end on. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and uh, remember the message of the gospel that we've heard this morning from his word and what we've sung. Father, we come to you this morning. We are your people. Though we are separate, we are still united in Christ. Lord, just like we sang, uh, because Christ, our Savior, has risen from the dead, we can face tomorrow. 
And because Christ lives, all fear is gone. And only the people of God can stand and say that in the face of the unknown. That because Christ lives, all fear is gone. We know who holds the future. And so this week, Father, help us to live as the people of God, remembering what our brother Paul has said, that if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and returned to life for this, that he might be Lord over both the dead and the living. And so, Father, this week, let us live by your Spirit as the people of hope, the people of God who love and care for one another, the people of God who are loved and cared for by, cared for by you, and the God of all things over viruses and nations, and yet you call us your sons and daughters. So, Lord, help us to go now in the peace of Christ, and we ask these things by your Spirit and through your Son. To you, our Father. Amen.